So this morning we're coming to the Transfiguration, and you, I'm sure some of you will uh, be well aware of the Transfiguration events that they've been preached on uh, by Pastor Murr here in the past. Some of you may never even looked at this passage before. Some of you may not know uh, what that even means or what I'm talking about when I say the Transfiguration. And actually, you know, th- th- this Transfiguration that does receive a prominent place in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Actually, in the commentaries when you look at, it's very rarely um, taken in depth. It's, it's off, a lot of the times it's, it's kind of um, skirted over, really. Even in, in our hymnology, when we're singing hymns. Um, I, I don't, does anybody know off the top of our head a hymn that mentions the word transfiguration in there? I don't. I can't remember any one that I can think of. There may be one. That, you know, you want to go home and search that, you can. There may be one in there. But generally not. We generally we sing about his birth. We sing about uh, his, his life, the servant king. We sing about his death, certainly. We sing about his return, certainly. But his transfiguration, not so much in these events. Um, and again, so, you know, what, what's the reason you know, why is it that so many kind of skip over this and, and not really delve into it? Um, I think probably because it does present problems to some. And for us, hopefully, under the Spirit of God and the inspiration of God, being dispensational in this church, this shouldn't pose any problems for us. Because there's a little kind of throwaway uh, uh, sentence in, in, in this that those that were witness to this transfiguration would not die until they saw the kingdom of God coming. And for a lot of people, that throws up a lot of things. How can this be right? Because these people are long dead and actually the kingdom of God, have we really seen it yet? So for, for some, I think they just kind of skirt over it and move on. We're not going to do that. We're going to get into it. We're going to have a look at it and we're going to take it apart because this is a wonderful preview. This is a glorious preview of the glory of the Lord and it's a wonderful passage of scripture and we're going to get into it and see what's going on. So a systematic approach will help us in this. So that's why we've got a little bit to get through and we'll try and get through it in a, probably an hour and a half, but we'll, we'll hour and 20 minutes. I can, get there, I can do an hour and 20 minutes. Going once, going twice. Amen. Okay, all right. We'll see who falls asleep first. Right, here we go. So, here's the first thing that I want to, I want to bring you to as we uh, look into this uh, this morning. I want to set the background. This is the precursor to the preview. The precursor, the things that have come before what happens in Matthew 17. And it says there in Matthew 17, verse number 1, After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his, his brother, and bringeth them apart into a high mountain. Now, after six days, what's going on before that? Well, handily enough, we can look at Matthew 16 and we can get a little bit of the context about what's happening on here. So six days have passed. Now, if you're a very astute uh, uh, st- uh, student of Scripture and you know all about this account, you may say to me, well, Luke says that it was after eight days, Pastor. So, you know, if you go home and you read the accounts, and you see that Luke says after eight days, and Mark says after six days, now the atheists will want to come along and say, oh, there, see, contradiction, your faith has fallen apart. Newsflash, our faith doesn't fall apart. We look at it, and we see these are different accounts written by different people, different viewpoints. And actually, there's a very simple answer, that Luke records the end days, and Matthew 
just does it the days in between. So rather than the day that it happened, when they left the place and the day they arrived, the end days, that's what Luke puts in, that gets us to eight, whereas um, Matthew here just really deals with the, the six days in between, the days in between the two days. All right? With me? Nobody's lost their faith. All right. Well, good. Go and look at it for yourself. So when we get into Matthew 17, the days that have gone past are supremely important in, in looking at what's going on here and what has happened in Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is another one of my, my favorite portions of scripture, just because if you ever uh, go to Israel with me and I, I take you to, to this area where Jesus Christ was in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Bonaeus really, where the the, the god Pan was worshipped. Some of you may have seen Pan's Labyrinth that came out um, a while ago. Maybe maybe none of you have seen that and never heard of it, but it's a film by uh, Camillo de, de Torre, Torre, or Torre, I think it's pronounced. And uh, it's about this ancient god Pan. And Pan is, is, is just a, a, another manifestation of Baphomet. There's another manifestation of, of the devil. This is all devil worship. But in the area, that's the god that was worshipped. And they had this place this crevice in the in the kind of the rocks where they believed it was the entrance to the underworld they used to call it the gates of hell and that's where jesus took his his disciples in matthew 16 he takes them up and remember you know the questions asked you know uh who who do, who do you say that i am and he kind of this will the answer comes back well some are saying this some are saying you're john the baptist look at verse 14 there uh they understood how it, oh no yes matthew 16 yeah, that's right. Is it verse 14? Yes, it is. Sorry, I haven't got my glasses on. I'm sorry. I was looking at verse 4. Again, it's the last <laughs> good. Verse 14, they said, Some say that they are John the Baptist, some Elijah, other Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said unto them, you know, this is the greatest question, the question that Christ asked today to each and every person that is here this morning, to each and every person that walks this world. Who do you say that I am? It's a personal decision. And he says this, and then Peter answered and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to him, verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjuma. He says, Flesh hasn't revealed it to you, but Father in heaven. And then he says, verse 18, Upon the art Peter, and upon this rock, now this is not Peter as the pontiff, this is the declaration as Christ as Messiah. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he's literally standing before the gates of hell in the pagan world. It'll be full of pagan worshippers when he's done this. So if you go to Israel with me, and we will try and get there, um, and do, do a trip maybe next year or the year after, I'll take you here and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll preach in this. And I love to do this because, you know, you still get a lot of apostates coming up to this place. And you can stand there where Jesus was and say that the gates of hell will not prevail. They'll try, but they will not prevail. And that Christ will build his church. You know, we're not defeatist. The world's doing what the world's doing, but Christ has promised. Church will never fall, never fail, because it's Christ's church and he's building it. So here we have this great declaration of, of Christ's uh, Messiahship. You know, they are the Christ. And, you know, so this is kind of Jesus' pinnacle of his teaching because he is trying to teach them. That's, you know, the first half of the phase of his teaching to his disciples up until this point is to teach them so that they will recognize he's Messiah. They can really recognize he's Messiah. Now, Messiah to those disciples we know meant what? It meant a king of an earthly kingdom who would 
overthrow those that oppressed God's elect people. So to the Jew, the Messiah figure was a warrior king that would come and he would restore Israel to the place of prominence and he would rule and he would reign over the world with a rod of iron. You know, this is, this is Isaiah prophecies. This is the Messiahship. That's where they're at. So Jesus is teaching them that he's Messiah. But look at verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time forth, and this is key, from that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. Why is this key? Because this is the second phase of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. The first phase is, recognize me as the Messiah. Second phase is recognize what that means. And what that means is, I must suffer and die. Not come and rule and reign, first and foremost, but I must suffer and die. Now that's a change in the mindset of the disciples and the Jews. So this statement that, that Jesus has made here, and you'll see, it's like they go up this hill, and there's a transfiguration on the mount, and as they come down, he's teaching about his death, his resurrection. It's a change that he's going to die. He's going to Calvary's cross. Yes, I'm Messiah. What a moment of glory to recognize that. But now recognize what I must do. I've come to die. And then come these words from verse 28, last verse there in 16, that is the stumbling block. Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And now people throw their toys out of the pram and like, whoa, what the, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do we equate this in Matthew 17? Because we know that the people there in Matthew 17 that were privy to what went on there, Peter, James, and John, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, are dead. Anybody disagree? No? Dead. Dead as dodos. Gone. But it says here that they're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what's going on? Well, this is, this is why we have to have a look and put it together and, and see, you know, what has happened. Now what's happening in Matthew 17? And uh, we'll see exactly what's going on on there as we look at the chronology and put it all together. So that's the backstory. Jesus has just taken his disciples to a place which is at that in that area is the pinnacle of Satan worship. That's what we'll call it. Not pagan worship. Satan worship. He has stood before the gates of hell. He says my church shall not prevail against it. I will build it. And then he says goes to the, the Mount of Transfiguration. The Transfiguration takes place. And he's starting to teach them that he's going to die. Confused? If I was the disciple and I was with Jesus, would I be confused? A little bit, I've got to be honest. Because he's just paraded me up into the pagan hotspot. <laughs> no, honestly. And said, I'm going to build a church, don't you worry about it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Six days later, whatever it is, he's moving on, he's teaching them. He's going to die. So you can see why the disciples are, are, are what, what's going on here. So he's teaching them that I am Messiah, 
But this is what my messiahship means. That's the background of what's going on here. And we'll have a look as we get in. Now, next thing we want to look at then uh, this morning is the place of the preview. So we've had, had the kind of background story. Now we want to have a look at the place. It says there in verse 1, uh, Matthew 17, he brings them apart into a high mountain or uh, into a high mountain apart. Now, early church fathers thought, a lot of them, that this was Mount Tabor. And they, they, they equated it, so you can look if uh, Jerome, Eusebius, others thought it was Mount Tabor. Uh, others, sorry, Eusebius thought it was Mount Hermon. Um, one possible reason for the identification of Mount Tabor is that it says that it was a, um, a mountain apart. And maybe there's a middle bit of confusion, a confusion going around about what that means. Does it mean a mountain that's apart on its own? Or does that mean he took them on their own? Again, personally, it doesn't matter where the mountain was. It matters what happened on the mountain. But for, for our purposes, I think that it's, um, I don't think it's Mount Tabor. I think it's Mount Hermon. Why does it say that? Number one, the location, right? So you can see down the bottom there, that's Mount Tabor, down the south of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is up the top. Um, where that's where um, the gates of hell are. Bonaeus, where Christ took the disciples. And then six days later, they're in near Mount Hermon. So number one is location. I don't think Mount Tabor lends itself to the context of the narrative that they, they left Caesarea Philippi, went all the way down to Mount Tabor. Now, you know, we're looking at that, and you know, that's not far in the car. Yeah. But that's a car, right? And if you've been to Israel and you look at the topology of the land, it's, you know, it's, it's a journey. So did they do that and then come back? Because there's no power in the mountain, right? The mountain has no power in it. It's the Lord that has the power in it. So to me, I think Mount, uh, Mount uh, Hermon fits uh, better. Um, that location is quite isolated as well. Also, um, uh, Mount uh, Tab- Tabor, there was a, um, a Roman fort that was there during the time of Jesus. So I don't think particularly he took them uh, to that secluded place to reveal his glory with the, with the Romans watching on with popcorn in their hand going, what's going on with these, these Jews? I don't, I don't think so. So again, taking everything into consideration, I think we're in Mount Hermon. It fits the, the narrative better. If it was Mount Tamar, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change what happens on, on the mountaintop. So we've got the context, we've got the, the place, give or take. Um, what about the participants as we put this all together? Um, first one again, we've got Peter, uh, James and John, you know, the kind of inner circle, those that are closest to the Lord, uh, led by Peter, followed by James and John, the sons of thunder. He brings them apart. And then verse 3 tells us there's two other figures that appear, uh, appeared unto them Moses and Elijah. Uh, talking with him. So we have there put together in the participants, we have Jesus, Peter, James and John, and then we have these guests of Moses and Elijah, which makes this kind of spectacular because at this point, Moses and and Elijah, you know, these are Old Testament saints. These are are men from the past. So it's it's certainly spectacular. Um, Interesting thing. Did, let me ask you this question, because I do like this to be interactive. Keep safe you're awake. Did, do you think, Peter, 
James and John have a picture of Moses or Elijah prior to this? No? No? Selfie? No? 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 No pictures? Of course it doesn't. So how did they know? You ever thought about that? I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> how did they know? I think they knew because they knew the gravity of the situation. They knew the figures that were represented and what was going on in the law and the prophets. And such was their presence that they knew they were in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And maybe there's some conversation between Jesus, Moses and Elijah that identifies them. So here we have these participants in the transfiguration. And um, you know, some fascinating little things that we can, we can pick out just as we look at those that are, are present here. So, you know, if you look, read down, we'll read down there actually, and we'll add some other participants, really. Um, verse 5 says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Similar kind of concept that goes on at the baptism of Christ. If you remember when we looked at it, in terms of the presence here, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have the Shekinah cloud representing the Holy Spirit. So who do we have at this event? We have the Godhead bodily. We have the Trinity, same as it was at uh, the baptism of Christ. So if you think about this, and these participants, we have the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present. We have those that went on to represent New Testament church, really. Peter, James, and John. We have the apostles, disciples then, but apostles. We have um, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> Moses, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. The prophet of all prophets. of the law. So really, when you think about the law, if I was to do pop quiz, give me somebody that represents the law. Give me somebody that represents the prophets in the Old Testament. Most Bibles of, of Israel, because law and the prophets, really, mostly Israel, you have a representation of the church and your representation of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. And if we're thinking about this kingdom aspect that when Jesus comes and he sets up his kingdom, you know, the presence that we're going to have there, we're going to have Israel, we're going to have the church, and we're going to have God. So this is a preview. It's a sneak uh, preview of what's to come. Another little beautiful thought in here that sometimes is, is, is missed and not often picked out, is that the, the, the representation of the kind of people groups so that, well, maybe the state of the people is a better way of terming it. Moses saved but died a normal death. Elijah saved. What do we know about him? Did he die a normal death? No, no. What happened to him? Took to heaven. So we've got uh, Elijah. We've got the, the uh, disciples there. Now we think about the kingdom that's coming. Now for some of you that haven't done or haven't looked at premillennialism, looked at the kingdom concept, 
But the, the type of people we have in the kingdom, and if you, we're nearly there in Revelation, so uh, we're, we're going to finish Revelation 19 tonight. Then we're going to Revelation 21 and 20, and we're going to deal with the kingdom, millennial kingdom. But in the kingdom, when Christ comes and he returns with his saints, as Jude prophesied that he would, he comes, he brings us with him. We're going to be there. The church is going to be there. But also, there's going to be other people there. There's going to be people there that are saved and died and have been brought into the kingdom. There's going to be people there that are living as Christ returns to the earth and go into the kingdom. And then there are those that have been raptured, the church, that have been taken to heaven, that haven't experienced physical death in that way, that will be present in the kingdom. So what am I saying to you here, here, here uh, this morning with all this? That these participants of this preview are pointing us to the kingdom that is coming and who will be there and what will be there and the way that it will be. Next one. We're getting through this quite quickly, so we're all right. Might get it done in an hour. The power of the preview. Look at verse 2 of Matthew 17. We've looked at the precursor, we've looked at the place, we've looked at our participants. Now we get to the power. Verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun and his raiment white as the light. That word transfigured comes from Latin roots trans, meaning a cross, and figura, meaning form or shape. The word uh, there in its form that's used is metamorphe or metamorphosis. That's where we get more caterpillar, metamorphosis changed into something, uh, changed in form. It's the same word that's used by Paul in Romans 12 too, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This metamorphosis that takes place. Um, Luke uses a different word. He uses the word enigeto uh, heteron, which means altered, uh, became different. So there's something changes here about the Lord Jesus. And in this vision, it says in verse 2, his face that shine as the sun. And it doesn't, this doesn't, the phrase doesn't do it justice. But this is like trying to look the sun in its fullness and trying to look in it with your naked human eyes. It's too, too bright to behold. That's what's going on here. His raiment was white as the light. There's a purity here. There's a brightness here. There's a glory here. And in this vision, these disciples see the transfigured Lord. This is truly, truly a preview of his glory. And what glory it is. It's a revelation of his glory. The word revelation means revealing, unveiling. This is what it was like. It was almost like he was, he was peeling it back and just showing them a glimpse of who he truly was. It's beautiful. Now the liberals will want to come along and say that the light reflected off him was simply from the sun catching him at the right angle. This wasn't any natural source. This was a supernatural revelation of the glory of God. The manifestation of Christ's divine glory upon that mountaintop. Dwight Pentecost puts it like this. Christ was not transfigured by means of an external light focused on him so that he reflected the glory of God. This is, this is not the same um, thing as what happened to Moses. Rather, this was the outshining of the essential glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. 
The Father's glory is Christ's glory. What a display. What a manifestation of his glory. Moses and Elijah then appeared and, and talked with Christ. And Luke gives us this little detail in Luke 9.31. It says this. He appeared in glory and spake, referencing Moses and Elijah, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. This is about the cross. And notice that he should accomplish. The cross wasn't an accident. It was an accomplishment. Peter, seeing this, seeing the revelation of the glory, seeing that Moses and Elijah tries to do something. What does he do? Verse 4, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? <laughs> it is good for us to be here. I mean, at least he appreciates that, what he's seen. He says, Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Here, Jesus, or Peter, who was tuned in with the Judaistic kingdom program. He was tuned in. Misplaced in his timing, but tuned in. And here he's looking to the Feast of Tabernacles. He's looking to the Feast of Tabernacles, which re represents you know, the, the wanderings and how they came out of that, but also looking to Israel's full enjoyment and the blessings in the land. And so Peter, Peter here is like, what should we do? We'll, we'll, we'll just do something. And he speaks out, we'll do this, but we'll build tabernacles. Surely this is, this is it now. I mean, this man has just told us that he is Messiah. Now we're in the mountaintop and we've seen his glory. We've seen uh, Moses and Elijah with him. And I know he started to teach us about his death, but he must be confused on that. Surely this is it. This is the kingdom. It's all coming into fulfillment. The time of the Jew is now. God has not forgotten his people. He will restore us. And Peter buys into that and, and, and does this act, which to us seems stupid, but to him was in line with his Judaistic roots. So Peter's correct in his understanding. He's just wrong in his timing. But who could blame him? I mean, it's easy to look with hindsight, isn't it? But just imagine you were there with Christ. I mean, for, for the first phase of his ministry, he's been teaching you. You get to the point where you realize, yes, you are Messiah. And now you connect the dots of what Messiah means. And then he starts to unconnect your dots. <laughs> and dismantle them. It says, yes, look at my glory. But I'm going to die going to suffer the father speaks into the situation verse 5 while Peter yet spake behold the bright cloud overshadowing them behold the voice of the cloud which said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear ye him no doubt G, uh, Peter was impacted by this you know you read Peter's epistles uh, certainly as as in Second uh, Peter there, and he writes about this. He writes about this moment. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And this voice which came from heaven we heard and when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter references this event. He references the power of the preview. He said, we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's important because of Matthew 16 verse 28. So this authentication of, of his Messiahship, but more than that, his glory. This is, this is the authentication of Emmanuel. God with them. So there was power in the preview. Then finally, this is the final point. What about the purpose? What was the purpose of the preview? What was the purpose of this transfiguration? Why do this? Why did this happen after Matthew 16? Why did this happen in that chronology, in that point where Jesus begins to teach them about his death and his suffering? Why does it come in? Because, number one, it's a lesson about who Jesus truly was, what it truly meant to be the Messiah, the burden that it was to carry Messiahship, that it wasn't all about the glory. But yet it was about the suffering that came before the glory. That the path he had to walk was a lonely one, was a hard one, was a heartbreaking one. Before the glory would ever come. Yes, he was Messiah. Jesus, uh, Peter had identified him as that. But he'd mislabeled what type of Messiah he was. He wasn't the Messiah that the Jews wanted. But he was the Messiah that the world needed. And that Messiah had to suffer before the glory. Secondly, the scene demanded that men hear Jesus as the one who had authority to speak unto them. Elevated himself above the law and the prophets. He's the key figure here. And I love this verse in verse 8. I love this verse. And just the application that we could take for us today, I love it. But read with me there, Matthew 17, verse 8. It says this. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now that's their events. But that's the point. That's the point. Yes, the law and the prophets have their place. But ultimately, they should see no man other than Jesus. For us this morning here as a church, I just think that's a tremendous verse that we would see no man save Jesus only. It's all about him. This is what this preview of this glory is. It's about the Lord lifted high and mighty in his divinity, in his glory, above all, beyond all. but yet still willing to walk the way of Calvary. You know, Moses, Elijah had their place, but not above Christ. They were only foreshadowing, picturing, and pointing to the one that stands at the top of the mountain this morning in Matthew 17. Thirdly, the purpose was that it confirmed the kingdom of the Messiah, that would be characterized by glory. These three disciples that are selected see this foretaste 
What is it? It's a fulfillment of Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, verse 28, where Jesus says, There shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, straight after that, what happens to these three disciples? They get a glimpse. They get a preview of the glory of God and what the kingdom's going to be like. And this scene then is a, is a key scene. Sometimes this will be missed also. This is a key scene in the life of Christ. Because remember what I told you, Luke's little reference that, that Moses and Elijah came to talk to him about his death. So the Lord knew, absolutely. Was this encouragement? Was this, are they worth it? <laughs> he knows what's going on. But they're there and they're conversing with Christ about his death. Were they strengthening him? I think probably they were. God strengthened Christ after his temptation. God strengthened Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when men fell asleep. Again, I think it's Luke that tells us that God sent an angel to minister to Christ. In his weakness. Is this another point where Christ is being tested in his commitment? I think it is. It's pinnacle. I think it is a pinnacle moment. Number one, it's on a mountain. <laughs> it's in the pinnacle. But I think this is a pinnacle moment because the, the ministry changes now. So in summary, when we deal with this transfiguration, this uh, preview of God's glory. Can you flick it on for me, please? This preview of God's glory. We see a glimpse of the kingdom to come. We see a glimpse of the glory of God. But ultimately, that's good. We can sit and we can look. And we can look back and go, yes, you know, we're thankful, Lord, that this recorded. We're thankful for this moment. But what should this moment mean to us? It's all right to teach. But if we don't, get any application then we just leave it in here as a tale from the past and it's so much more than a tale from the past what is it what is this trying to tell us what is the lord trying to tell us and here's the lesson for us i think this morning in the application number one jesus is lord but number two the lesson that he's teaching us is that before the glory there's a walk of suffering there's a walk of suffering. Remember said the cross wasn't an accident. It was an accomplishment. He suffered the cross for the glory that laid before him. Now the Lord is ascended on high. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is in glory and he's coming again in his glory. You can be sure of that. But before that, he had to walk the path of suffering. He had to carry the cross. He had to lay down his life. He had to be mocked, beaten, spot upon. But yet this was the same Jesus who revealed his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. And that should speak to us, I think, church. Are we partakers of the glory of God? Absolutely. If you're here this morning and you're born again, you have the indwelling presence of God. You're a glory carrier. 
It's there. But it's not what it will be. We've got a bit, but not what we will be. When we see him, we should be like him. Changed, glorified. No more sin, no more suffering, no more shame. That's coming. But for now, we may have to walk the path of suffering. Just like our Saviour did all those years ago. There are many that will try and teach that in the Christian faith, if you're not being blessed, your faith is nothing. I want to point to the Saviour. The one who was full of faith, full of obedience, perfectly active, obedient to God the Father, and yet the one who was all glory had to walk the path of suffering. So what are we to do when we're up against it? We're to look and say, it was good enough for our Lord, it's good enough for me. What do the disciples say when they're beaten? They rejoice to be called worthy to suffer in the name of the Lord. What's the pattern Jesus is showing? Yes, glory lies ahead. But before the glory comes, there might have to be some suffering. I wonder this morning if you're going through it. I wonder this morning if you're challenged. I wonder if this morning if you're ready to throw the towel in. Say, this Christian life is not what I signed up for. Why am I not getting all the good things? Let me tell you, beloved. Good things are coming. More than that, great things are coming. But until that day, there may be some suffering before the glory. Up in Mount Hermon, the Lord Jesus shows his glory. And what a glory it is. Why? Because it's the glory of the word. Let's pray.